Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative, and today we're going to be talking tobacco policy. The government has a slate of changes to how tobacco and cigarettes are going to be regulated and sold. That'll be flowing through in 2024, 2025, and beyond. They're going to have some fairly substantial effects, and we're going to talk through some of these. With me today, we have Phil Barry, who's Executive Director at TDB Advisory. They're an economic consultancy who've done work on economic and regulatory affairs internationally, as well as in New Zealand, and we'll be chatting through some of the issues in New Zealand's tobacco control policy. So, welcome, Phil. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here with you. So first up, for those who haven't been paying attention to the changes, what has been legislated and when does it all come in? Well, there's three key elements to the changes. And I think you're right. Most people are not aware of what the changes are. So firstly, there's going to be a reduction in the number of retail outlets that are allowed to sell tobacco products, and a big reduction from about 6,000 outlets at the moment, dairies, supermarkets, petrol stations, etc., to only 600 licensed outlets across the country. Second policy is that the amount of nicotine in cigarettes is going to be drastically reduced under the the legislation, the regulations, by about 90% plus. So we're talking not just low nicotine, we're talking very, very low nicotine products, being the only cigarettes that will be allowed to be sold. In terms of timing, that first change in terms of the number of retail outlets is supposed to come into effect in July 24, and the very low nicotine follows up about nine months later in April 2025. The third element, the last leg of the trifecta, if you like, is that anyone who was born after 1 January 2009, will not be able to legally buy cigarettes, tobacco products, ever in their lifetime. Now that comes into effect, supposedly, or will, under the legislation, come into effect, I think, on January 2027. So it means, basically, if you're under 18 then, you will not be able to buy cigarettes ever. Roll forward 10 years in 2027, you're now 28, you're not allowed to buy cigarettes, but your older brother, who's 29, can buy them. Trouble is, he's not allowed to buy them for you because then he becomes a criminal. Yeah, that's a kind of a fun one because my kids are in exactly that spot, right? So my son was born in 2008, my daughter was born in 2010. So when he gets his Nobel, I'll be able to buy him a cigar for celebration. But when she gets her Nobel, it'll be forbidden for me to get her a celebratory cigar. (laughs) Exactly. And it'll it'll be in the bizarre situation where older people have to carry ID to prove they're old enough to buy cigarettes. Yeah, that'll be fun to watch. (laughs) Yeah, so we have all of these changes coming through. Now, I'm immediately seeing some fish hooks and some potential problems here. So first, you're talking about a reduction in the number of allowed outlets from around 6,000 to about 600. Have they really set what the process is for deciding who's going to be allowed to have a license? I haven't seen any clear criteria. There have been some drafts come out of where the, what the map of the country might look like, and... It's hard to see any any logic there. Auckland, for example, will only have 30 licensed retail tobacco product outlets. So that's for a population of one and a half million people, 
say. So that's about uh, one shop for about 45,000 people. So in other words, one shop for the size of Porua, one shop for the size of Upper Hutt. It's pretty hard to imagine. Okay, so the first things that I start thinking about when I think about this kind of a licensing regime are, well, I go back to Gordon Tullock because I'm a George Mason guy. Tullock was one of my profs. And I think it was in 1975, Gordon Tullock wrote this piece called The Transitional Gains Trap. So the basic idea there was, suppose that you've got a license for something that's potentially really valuable. So if... All of, if your competition has been decimated and you're the only one that's allowed to have a license in your area, if people still want to buy cigarettes, that license is going to be really valuable to you, right? It's like a local monopoly license. So you should be willing to spend a lot of real resources trying to be the one who wins that license. So whatever process the government comes up with, whether it's just, a, I guess the cleanest one would be a lottery. If they just ran a straight lottery, maybe you wouldn't run into the same qu- kind of problem. But if they're running it through some kind of proof of worthiness, that you're a moral and upright character, and that you're fulfilling lots of community obligations with lots of potential for input by people in the community, I can imagine being willing to spend an awful lot to convince people in my neighborhood that they should be supporting my application. And of course, all of my competitors are doing the same thing too, right? So in Tullock's view, you wind up in a spot where the competition to get the license erodes the monopoly rents that you'd wind up getting. And then after the license has been given, well, you're only earning normal profits again. So that's what turns it into the transitional gains trap. When I'd looked at it, there was some potential consultation with, well, with community and getting reports from those in the neighborhood and affected communities, the ones you usually consult with or are required to consult with now. You can imagine lots of points where, uh, well, things get a little bit messy in trying to get support for your application rather than somebody else's. Look, who knows how this is going to unfold, Eric. There's several things that worry me about it. One, as you say, those licences could be very valuable. And if they are, and there's not a lottery, which it's just not the style of of the Ministry of Health to run an auction system for something like this, even though that might be the economic rational thing. An auction would be best. You'll end up potentially with corruption. Yep. And that would be very sad in New Zealand. The second thing, though, as, as you're well aware, is the interaction between these policies. Because are they going to be valuable, those, those licences, if you're only allowed to sell cigarettes that no one wants anyway? Those very low nicotine, very, very low nicotine cigarettes. So, you know, all this points towards, to me, a black market emerging and, you know, undermining some pretty key elements of our social fabric in the country. Yeah, that does get into the second aspect, and you're, you're dead right that the VLNC rules would create cigarettes that people probably aren't going to want to buy more than once or twice. As I understand things in the limited trials that they've had of them, people haven't much liked them. I think the 22nd century is it's an American outfit that has a an engineered tobacco plant that's able to be at the very low nicotine threshold required by New Zealand regulation. I think they're the only su- supplier in the world and they're under some financial difficulty currently. I start wondering about whether they're, whether the government's actually going to be able to go ahead with the rules as written. Because if they go ahead with them as written, well, it would require 22nd century to scale up production for a surge to the New Zealand market because they'd be the only legal supplier of n- tobacco to New Zealand. But scaling up knowing that people are probably not going to buy more than 
one to five packs of this stuff. Like it, when I'd run the numbers on it before, the nicotine levels in it were the equivalent of, like if you take the standard level of nicotine in a cigarette and compare it to the threshold that's being required, well, if a standard beer is 5%, this is the equivalent of a maximum alcohol concentration in beer of 0.2%. So unless you really, really like the taste of low alcohol beer, and there are some good low alcohol beers, um, you're not going to be buying them again. I'm not sure that that many people smoke cigarettes for the wonderful cigarette flavor. I think that the nicotine has a bit more to do with it. And if that's right, then demand for the things collapse. If the, if demand for the things collapse and if 22nd century is expecting that you're kind of expecting them then to gear up production and distribution for a small market at the far end of the world where you're not going to have any repeat business. That's like huge fixed cost with no potential for ongoing revenue. It's all seeming kind of zany. Yeah, well, I mean, cigarettes are highly addictive substances, and it's the nicotine that people want. And if you have very low nicotine, people just aren't going to get the hits that they really want. It's really interesting at the moment the way the tobacco product consumption is is declining rapidly, almost plummeting, as people, well, two things going on. One is the very high tax rates on cigarettes, tobacco products, but the other is the availability of, of vapes. And the, the increase in vapes almost mirrors the decline in the consumption of, of tobacco products. And really what's happening is the demand for nicotine. People are replacing one source of nicotine with the other. Yeah. So if the VLNC rules are enforced as they are written, then the right to sell tobacco isn't going to be worth very much. You'll get like eight months worth of sales before everything falls apart. So it almost becomes irrelevant how they decide how to run that or where the stores are. We could wrap, tie ourselves in knots around all of that stuff for something that nobody's going to want to buy after the VLNC rules come in from 1 April 2025. Or more likely, or at least if I were a betting guy, and I'm kind of a betting guy, because I used to play on iPredict all the time, I'm guessing that sometime next year, the Ministry of Health is going to figure out that it's actually not workable to get cigarettes into the country that meet the regulatory thresholds required, and that they will just quietly change the thresholds. They'll change it from being a VLNC rule to one that rules out the highest strength cigarettes. So we have there are cigarettes on the market here that are higher strength than on markets elsewhere. Set a rule that, that caps things, but the average cigarette is left alone. I could imagine them making that shift kind of quietly while calling it a win. Or maybe setting it at sort of a sinking lid where eventually, maybe in the fullness of time, we have an aspiration of hitting the VLNC target that they've put in, which is the equivalent of 0.2% beer. But we won't hit that till 2050 or something mm -hmm. and that they slowly scale it down. I could imagine those kinds of things happening, in which case, while the licensing really matters and where the shops are allowed to be really matters and all of that. So it gets really complicated to kind of work through. If you take the government as... To, if you take the government's rules seriously, as they have written them, one, Treasury is all wrong in its tobacco excise forecast from 2025 onwards, which they didn't account for in the budget because cigarette demand is just going to collapse. Or we just assume that the policy is going to fail. It, yeah, it's a mess. Well, look, it's, we could speculate on where this might go. And I, I think it's absolutely 
good, fair questions you're asking. Just to go back to our report, if I might, yeah. Eric. So let's let's get into the report then. So just to preface it, so Phil with TDB and Adolf Strumbergen at Infometrics worked on this. It was a report commissioned by the tobacco industry. I think it was three tobacco companies that paid you guys to work out some numbers on all of this stuff. That's right. And you've well, you've got some numbers up on the potential cost of the le- legislation relative to some counterfactuals, and I'll poke you a bit on some of these costs. Yep. Good, good. Could I just say one one more important thing about the report that we've we've done? And it was jointly done by TDB Advisory and Infometrics, as you said, and it was commissioned by the three large tobacco companies. They asked for our independent advice, and that's what we've given them. The very important point I want to make, though, Eric, is that we are not and we have not questioned the goal of the government in terms of smoke-free 2025. You know, no one disputes the harm caused by smoking tobacco products. And all we're doing is we're saying, look, let's, that's a great goal. We're not questioning your intention, but is this act, those three measures that I referred to at the start, are they the best way to achieve that goal? Are they necessary? What are the costs? What are the benefits of those things? And is there a, maybe a better way? Great stuff. So start walking us through it. <laughs> what did we find? We found three main things, Eric. The first thing is that smoking rates are plummeting in New Zealand. We're down, the latest figures are for 2022, and the smoking rate amongst the adult population is now 8%. A decade earlier, it was 16%. So that's a, re- a reduction of, of over one percentage point per annum. If that rate of decline continues, and if anything it's picking up because of vaping, but if it just continues, we'll get to New Zealand will get to that 5% target around 2026, 20, 2027 maybe. So, you know, do we actually need to be doing anything more to, to achieve that target? I think that's a very important question. We're going to get there anyway. The sec- second point we well, found... Can I, can I interrupt you on that? Just so sure. we can pick on that a little bit. As I read through the report, the ministry's RIS, they overestimated actual smoking rates. So what they put up an RIS that had some estimate of current smoking that had nothing to do with the actual current smoking rates that overshot relative to the current actual smoking rates so that they could pretend that there's a much bigger problem that needed to be solved and that their policies were going to be just the thing to solve it. Is that, is that what happened there? Look, it's, we do not understand. We could only, I wouldn't say they pretended, but when you look at the numbers, the actual numbers, remember, 8%? Mm-hmm. What they assumed for smoking rates in 2022 in their modelling was 15%. So it wasn't just a, a little gap. They assumed the problem was twice the size of what it actually is. And that, that 8% figure comes from where? comes from the uh, the Ministry of Health's official numbers. So the uh, RIS isn't using the Ministry of Health's official numbers, it's using something else. Well, they I think the argument they gave was it was during COVID and they weren't too sure whether to believe the numbers. That's an interesting take. <laughs> I don't know, but it's it's re- it's a huge issue. The second thing the modeling did and it's not just us who's picked them up on this, but ASH, 
you know, the action for smoking, against smoking and, and for health. Action on smoking and health, yes. Yeah, thank you. They commissioned uh, Bates and, and other academics to review the modelling of the Ministry of Health, and they are highly critical of the Ministry's modelling. Essentially, they said the Ministry's modelling way overestimated the likely benefits of the policy changes. They, the policy changes, the modelling was based on some trials in controlled room with people who were volunteers, wanted to give up smoking, and they were only, you know, trialled for six months oh, maximum. I think that gets more into the estimates of the effects of the VLNC rules. But yeah. Yeah. So for the first finding that you'd had was that smoking rates are already dropping con- considerably and that the ministry had over-egged things by pretending that smoking rates are currently higher than they actually are in the MOH's data, which is a bit weird. The other thing I was going to poke you on, though, on your projections. So you were just running the counterfactual smoking rates. So imagine that we didn't run any policies like this. What would smoking rates look like if they continued to decline? And you had that that continued decline over time. Well, I was wondering a little bit on that because the very recent accelerated decline in smoking was with the increase in vaping. And like I've not looked hard at these numbers, but I would have expected that like the, from 2018 onward, when vaping really started picking up because you had the decision in PMI, so it was no longer going to be sort of a gray market thing with vaping. You could actually have it sold above counter in shops and the like. There's going to be sort of a natural curve where there's a, kind of a slow uptake and then wrap it up to you'll have some first adopters that pick it up then it disperses broadly and then things would start petering out because you'll have reached kind of everybody who's likely to be picked up by vaping and if you haven't picked up vaping by like five six years after it's out in the market well maybe that's just not going to be the stop smoking aid for for you right so i was wondering whether it made sense to assume that we'd have this continued rapid decline in smoking unless we had other reduced harm alternatives that started coming onto the market as well to give those extra extra mm. hits and those mm. other ways for mm. people to shift out. Mm. No, it's a, it's a fair point, Eric. We have just assumed that the, the rate will continue to decline more or less linearly, so, but there may well be a levelling off in that rate. I think it'll continue to decline. Yeah. And, and remember, that's without the policy measures yeah. that the government has introduced. No, I agree. So you've got the smoking rates asymptoting down to, uh, asymptoting, I mean, like it declines and then it kind of levels out a bit and you have it leveling out something, something a little below 2%. Yeah. I, I'm not sure whether it would get down to 2% without more reduced reduced harm alternatives coming onto the market or that it would go quite as quickly, but we get to the same kind of general uh, conclusion on it. Well, you know, exactly. And it's interesting that Sweden, for example, is probably going to get to 5% this year. So I'm confident New Zealand will get there. You know, nobody wants like smoking. Most people who smoke want to give up. We know that. And there are substitutes now. So it's, And yeah. Sweden gets us to something that we'll probably want to pick up on later too, <laughs> yeah. on uh, Swedish snooze. But I'd interrupted. You'd given your first big finding and I yeah. poked you a little bit Th- on it. What was your second one? Thank you. So the first big finding, remember, was that probably this legislation's unnecessary. The second big finding was that even though it's unnecessary, it's it, it's happened and it's going to very likely impose a lot of costs on society. Costs because of the shutdown of those retail stores, stress on the owners, 
some involuntary unemployment, certainly more travel time for people who are going to have to go, you know, maybe 20 kilometres to buy a cigarette, where at the moment they only have to go two kilometres round trip. Costs in terms of a loss of revenue to the government that, that I think you're well aware of, even though the Treasury might not be. They're aware of it now. <laughs> and we, we estimate, we've, you know, it's, it's difficult to quantify these costs because there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Uncertainty about how people will respond and how, how behaviour will change. But we've, we've you know, made some, some estimates using the data that's available, using the evidence that's available, and taking, a we think, a conservative approach overall. But in total, those costs probably add up to over a billion dollars in present value terms. So first thing that I'll do when I'm looking through one of these is, okay, what's the biggest cost component and does it seem like it's plausible? And I'd seen you poked on, well, okay, you weren't, you're not on Twitter, so you weren't poked on Twitter, but one of the responses on Twitter to one of your biggest cost items, the travel cost one, was that that seemed implausible to them because they were expecting that people would generally just combine it with some other trip. Now, when I'd read through your report, because I was being careful for that one, now tell me if I've got this right, you're estimating that about 90% of the time people are going to be combining it with some other trip and 10% of the time it's going to be just a dedicated trip because you run out of smokes and you don't have any other reason to be going out. So 10% of the time you've got this increased travel cost. 90% of the time, well, it's not an increased cost. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. So it isn't an estimate that everybody's only going out for cigarettes all the time. It's that some of the time they get caught short and then they have this massive increase in travel cost for those times. Exactly. And they're also going to be buying more in every trip. For the rest of the time, they we're assuming that they will have to, but they will choose to bulk buy yeah. because to save on the travel costs. It's interesting, you know, people's preference. And we've talked to a few dairy owners. Is typically the, the people come in, they'll buy one pack at a time. They're not going to probably continue to do that because, as we say, they're going to have to travel quite a bit further to get those those cigarettes. Well, it's fun too because, okay, I don't take all of the behavioral economic stuff seriously, but one of the things that they come to is around availability in the house. And if you want to constrain yourself against doing yeah. something, then not having it in the house and having having to leave the house and go do something to get it, that's one way of discouraging it, right? Well, if you've made it really, really hard to go get smoke, so you have a big stockpile in the house, that could wind up increasing smoking relative to what you otherwise might have had. That would be bizarre, but it's quite conceivable. So long as they don't go ahead with the VLNC rules. <laughs> well, that's the other big cost we haven't talked about yet, and that's the black market costs. Because this legislation, all the evidence from overseas, and we can talk about some of the examples, is that banning these sort of supply-side controls where the demand's still there lead to black market behaviour. And that, you know, it's hard again to quantify that, very hard. But again, we've just taken some conservative approaches. We've used the Treasury's CBAX model numbers. And, you know, the, there's going almost certainly going to be increased black market. There's going to be increased crime. There's going to be increased gang-related activities. There's probably going to be more ram raids. There's going to be you know, more smuggling across the border. Ram raids on what? Like uh, well, this is the question. If it's a VLNC cigarette, <laughs> nobody's going to be ram raiding yeah. to buy those. Yeah, but let's, I agree, but let's assume that the 600 licensed retailers have something that people want. Okay. 
then they're going to need to be fortresses because they're going to be highly attractive. Well, you wind up again in this kind of terrible spot where for a few months you're going to have 600 shops that are the only places that are allowed to sell cigarettes. And if the government, if they expect that the government goes ahead with the VLNC rules and that nobody's going to want cigarettes anymore after that point, well, investing a lot in security for something nobody's going to want to buy afterwards, that, that starts getting to be complicated <laughs> to encourage them. Maybe they could make it part of the license application that you're required to have a fortress if you're going to be issued a license. But otherwise, I ha- it's, well, it gets pretty messy. It sure does. And it's already messy. You know, we've, we've increased the taxes on cigarettes to the point where cigarettes are a highly valued commodity. You know, a, a kilogram of tobacco is worth more than a kilogram of silver. Yeah, so you know, it's a lot harder to carry too. Sure. But but it's not a, a a low value commodity anymore, and we're already seeing the effects. Well, this legislation is going to snowball. If 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 doesn't matter really whether it's VLN or not, because people still want the nicotine, so they will go off under the counter, off market to get what they want. Cool. So we should be expecting an increase in. You described ram raids earlier. I'm not really expecting that. I'd be expecting more smuggling and yeah. just black market activity that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, and look, we there's plenty of examples around the world of this type of behavior being observed. So, in, for example, country Bhutan in Asia banned cigarettes from around 2002, banned the sale, then banned manufacturing, banned consumption from about 2008. And what did it see? It saw increased smuggling. They do have a land border. And they saw a lot of smuggling from India. They didn't see consumption decline almost at all. World Health Organization figures showed by 2019 consumption was still around 24%, pretty much the same as it was back in 2002. People just substituted legal cigarettes for illegal ones, Government lost tax revenue as a result. Criminal behaviour increased somewhat and ultimately became unsustainable. And in 2022, the government changed its mind, decided let's go back to what the rest of the world does, which basically allows people to smoke if they want to. Yeah. And the usual retort in New Zealand is that we're an island and it's impossible to smuggle into an island, but I think Australia puts pay to that pretty easily. Yeah, if it's attractive, financially attractive enough, people will find ways around it. And Customs New Zealand is already seen. Again, the numbers are only about seizures, so we don't know how much is getting across the border successfully. But if you assume the ratio hasn't changed, then the, the number of seizures has increased by about threefold over the last three or four years. Yeah, and predominantly in loose tobacco, if I'm remembering right. Now, I'd interrupted you earlier where you were talking about the government's modelling of the effects of a VLNC rule, where you were saying that they've kind of overestimated this based on a few little experimental studies where people were given VLNC cigarettes just and then they tried to estimate the effects. And they've extrapolated that into what they think would happen with smoking rates here. Yeah, exactly. And those people were under intensive sort of care, they were getting behavioural support, they were getting psychological support. I don't see the government's budgeted for any of that. It's just simply going to be an outright ban. I'd also thought that in some of those studies they couldn't quite tell whether people were sneaking a real cigarette on the side at the same time (laughs) if they were part of the experiment. 
I don't know, but but look, this this modelling was seriously flawed. And look, it's not just us who say that. Ash, as I said, commissioned a review, and they found that, and I quote, the, the In, modelling the was seriously flawed, and based it on fundamental and incorrect assumptions. It's the modelling misinterpreted the results of the of the random control trials assumes the results of the trial are, are applicable to a population-based program. It included all sorts of pharmacological and behavioural support, and perhaps most importantly, it didn't allow for changes in behaviour, didn't recognise that just because the government bans something that people want, doesn't people won't, aren't just robots, they won't necessarily follow what the government tells them, they'll find other ways to get what they want. So that was your second finding then, that this is all going to be pretty costly. And then the third finding was really what you touched on earlier, and that is that actually there could be some quite perverse outcomes here. For example, people bulk buying because they have to travel further and then maybe ended up smoking more rather than less. People, you know, the, the reductions in nicotine, may, maybe that'll cause people to inhale more, or deeper, smoke more. But I'm again, I'm going to challenge you on that one. The, <laughs> yeah. I, I, just for stepping back a little bit, there's a reasonable economic literature on some of this. So I think it was Canaglia et al. circa 2008. I'm trying to remember now. They'd done this work looking at the effects of tobacco excise on the intensity of smoking. And this is just a really fun study, right? So you increase excise rates and you see people buy fewer cigarettes and declare victory. But some of that effect is that people are smoking each cigarette a lot harder to get every last bit out of it because you've increased the cost of each cigarette, right? So they were looking at, I think, cottonine concentrations and saliva and how they varied with excise rates. It's really, really mm. neat stuff. But all of that to me seems real plausible in the excise case. I just don't buy it in the VLNC case because if the concentration of nicotine in a cigarette is the equivalent of 0.2% beer, well, it, it reminds me of like one of my favorite footnotes in a tax report ever. So in the Henry Review in Taxation, I think it was 2010 in Australia, it might have been 2008, I can't remember. They had this section on alcohol tax where they said, well, we should exempt, I think it was the first 1.6% of alcohol from tax. Because, and then they had the rationale, if you, if you drank liters and liters of water that had, one, uh, I think it was 1.6% concentration alcohol in it, you'd die of water poisoning before you died of alcohol poisoning. Therefore, the first 1.6 should be just duty-free. Well, we're talking here 0.2% alcohol, right? Nobody's going to get drunk on that. You're not going to get a nicotine hit off of a VLNC cigarette. So maybe somebody's going to try smoking one of those really hard once or twice, but I think they're going to give up pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, who knows what we'll do? We know people are creative. Maybe they'll add liquid nicotine to the cigarettes. Maybe they'll grow their own tobacco in their backyard, which you can, which is legally possible. Sure. Maybe they'll, you know, switch the vapes. You know, and yep. you know, there's all sorts of behavioural responses. But a lot of those responses were just ignored in the in the government's modelling, and it was just automatically assumed that we were going to get this huge impact from if government said people can't smoke, people would not smoke. Well, I wish it was that simple. Yeah, I'm reminded also of when the prisons first started banning cigarettes yeah. and prisoners are trying to smoke the patch. Didn't, didn't work out well for anybody. <laughs> 
So I, I wonder what experiments would come out of trying to add nic- nicotine fluid to uh, VLNC cigarettes. But I'm, I expect instead we'll just see more, more uptake of black market. Eric, if there's one theme to our report, and it's, it's a big report and not pe- many people read the whole thing, but it's summed up in the epigraph to the, to the report, the little one-liner at the start, from an American economist called Thomas Sowell, and he, he sums it up nicely. He says, if there's any lesson in the history of ideas, it is that good intentions tell you nothing about the actual consequences. Yeah, he's a smart guy. At the end of your report, you go through a few alternatives that might be more effective mm-hmm. than what the government is here pitching. So walk us through some of those. Yeah, thank you. Because I think there are some alternatives that are a lot less costly and could be more effective too as well. First thing, though, just to go back, is do nothing is an option. Do nothing more than what we're already doing. And we're probably going to get to that target by 2026. Well, actually doing nothing would be an improvement on some of what they've proposed because if I've been... They're looking now at vape regulation again and it'll... well. So far, the government has been fairly conservative. They're not going to be ruining things too much, but I think National has been pushing them to be worse on it than they have been. They've been very excited about youth vaping rates and worried that this will be a big problem in future. There is risk that through overregulation on that side, they make it harder for smokers to switch over to vaping. So that could be another part of the counterfactual that'd be a problem here, right? Smoking rates will not decline as quickly if regulation on vaping ramps up. No, exactly. That would be stupid. Yeah, <laughs> I can't think of a bit, another word because, you know, yes, vapes are socially undesirable. They probably do some damage, but relative to smoking, they are almost negligible. The, the, the studies, you know, it's still evolving. We're still learning, but it's probably one hundredth of the, of the damage. Maybe, even if it's 10 times that, it's far less damage than inhaling carcinogenic substances which comes from smoke tobacco yep. so yeah let's be very clear on that look there are other another option is to allow other reduced harm products as well as vapes and there are t- two that come to mind one is called snus snus is a swedish product it's basically a roll a t- little roll of tobacco that you put under your upper lip between your lip and your gum Again, not a particularly attractive sort of habit, but you're not smoking the damn thing. You're not igniting it. You're not burning tar. And and it's actually Sweden that's got very, very low rates of uh, smoking-related diseases, it, partly as a result of the use of snus. And as we said, Sweden's going to probably achieve that 5% target this year. Yeah, that's remarkable. So I would first learned of snus. Uh, I was at University of Canterbury, and I think I'd written an op-ed for the press or something on some of the anti-smoking rules that were then coming into force. And I'd gotten an email from a public health guy saying, you know, New Zealand just should legalize snus. They've had it in Sweden. For, like This is circa maybe 2005, 2006. Sweden's had this for a long time, and it's really working there, and they're going to really bring down their smoking rates, and New Zealand's banned it. And just frustrating to watch this one. So if you'll recall, when Philip Morris sued the government to allow the sale of heated tobacco products, mm. so they had this product called Juul. It's a heated tobacco thing where instead of burning the tobacco, you heat it up and 
they were arguing that it was actually legal under the act because the act wouldn't have banned it. The judge found that PMI was correct. The legislation never had actually banned it. The line that the Ministry of Health was relying on that said chewed tobacco is banned, comma, or tobacco for other oral use, that it needed to be interpreted restrictively for actions that were comparable to chewing. Well, snus is nothing like chewing. You, you suck on the, the sachet. You don't chew it at all. If you chewed on it, it'd be horrible. So the same legal decision legalized snus at the same time, or at least very arguably. That was the most plausible reading of it. And Ministry of Health kept pretending that, oh, no, 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 anything that's absorbed through the oral mucosa, that's what's banned. But that was never written into the legislation, right? So then in the latest round of updates to the legislation, they went and wrote in a definition saying, oh, absorbed through the oral mucosa means that it's banned, right? So we're it looked like the legal decision had legalized snus and the Ministry of Health has recognized that snus is a hell of a lot better than smoked tobacco. Well, I don't know if it is Ardern's just distaste for snus or what, but uh, they made sure that the legislation explicitly banned it, as long as it's considered a tobacco product. So that that is pretty disappointing and not consistent with the harm reduction purposes of the act. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to your yeah. question about other options, a, a third option, Eric, would be to target um, interventions at the problem groups. So we haven't talked about some of the parts of the population where smoking rates still are very high. For example, Maori and Pacific Islanders, where rates of smoking rates are, are coming down rapidly, but they're still around 20% for Maori males, Maori females. And, you know, what do you do there? It's not easy, but I don't think you want to stigmatise the population groups. You don't want to, you know, use a heavy hand and, and a across-the-board blanket controls, which are just going to push these people into the margins and push them into the into the black market. It's not, yeah. a, not an easy one. I'd rather, I'd rather see people work with the communities and work in partnerships. Yeah, and if the government were really interested in helping those groups, they'd do well to talk with Maria Glover, but they don't seem to like her very much either. Mm-hmm. So she's a specialist in, in encouraging uptake of vaping with those communities, and she's been kind of written out on the among the tobacco control groups. Anyways, that's a little frustrating, but it's been fun reading through your report. It's always frustrating when I read through these. It's so obvious that the government's going to be screwing up relative to what it claims that it's trying to achieve, and it's going to be really costly along the way. You've put a few numbers on it. We can quibble over some of those numbers, but the broad thrust is right. The legislation is kind of a ham-fisted way of trying to achieve things. I'm still expecting that the whole thing's going to fall over on the VLNC rules, that they're not going to be able to make it workable. But if they do, hello, black market. Yeah. Well, look, I think our role as economists here is to point out the, the realities of the situation, look at the costs and the benefits of policies. And in this case, I really can't see nobody questioning the objective, but is this a smart way to achieve it? Thank you, Phil. Your report's on your website? It is indeed. So if people wanted to search for it, how would they find it? Just go to tdb.co.nz. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Phil. Great chatting with you, and thank you, listeners. Tune in again next time. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>